This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Gilbert King, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Devil in the Grove. Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America. Here's a description of the book. The year is 1951. America was on the verge of change. Thurgood Marshall had just begun to try what would become the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education. The man known as Mr. Civil Rights and the most important American lawyer of the 20th century was about to make history, but first he would have to make it through the deadliest case of his career, where four young men, the Groveland boys, were headed for Florida's electric chair, falsely accused of raping a 17-year-old white girl. The case would pit Thurgood Marshall and his legal staff against the murderous Lake County Sheriff's Department, a malicious prosecutor, J. Edgar Hoover, the Ku Klux Klan, bent on preserving and protecting the flower of Southern womanhood, and the Southern Way of Life. Fascinating book. Uh, Gilbert King has written about the U.S. Supreme Court history and capital punishment for the New York Times and Washington Post. He's a featured comment a contributor to the Smithsonian Magazine's history blog, Past Imperfect. He's author previously of The Execution of Willie Francis, Race, Murder, and the Search for Justice in the American South. And he lives in New York City with his wife and two daughters. Gilbert King, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I understand you uh, found this case uh, researching previous books. Is that how you uh, came across this? Yeah, that that's pretty much it. I was uh, I was working on that book that you mentioned, the execution of Willie Francis, and it was a, a case set in Louisiana, a death penalty case. And Thurgood Marshall was not involved at all, but he, I, I noticed that he was sending letters to sort of advise the lawyers in Louisiana how to go about, you know, defending a client who was facing, you know, execution. And I, I remember thinking when I saw that, I was like, what is Thurgood Marshall? This isn't even his case. Why is he involved in this? And I really didn't know anything about his criminal cases. Um, yeah, I think everybody's familiar with his work at, you know, as ultimately the uh, first African-American Supreme Court justice, but also like on the landmark decisions like Brown versus Board and, and some of the voting rights cases. But I had really no idea that he was working on these criminal cases in the 40s and 50s. And so I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to go look at his files in Washington and just sort of see what else he was involved in. And that's pretty much how I stumbled upon this case. Yeah, I remember Thurgood Marshall as, a, you know, a colorful, older Supreme Court justice. But they're, you know, right. and, and vaguely aware that he was involved in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, you call him here the most important lawyer of the 20th century. And it's certainly that, that's yeah. supportable. And, and a lot of people actually agree with that. I mean, if you look back at some of the Supreme Court decisions that he won, 
Um, you know, there's some of the most important decisions, uh, you know, the voting rights cases, just taking, you know, the, the Texas white primary. He was the one that got that one um, fixed at the Supreme Court. And so now African-Americans were coming onto the voting rolls in, in, in tremendous numbers in 1944. And then you have the housing cases. And, of course, he's, you know, best known for Brown versus Board, which is, you know, the school segregation case. Uh, I want to talk about the title of the the book, and that that got me thinking about uh, Jim Crow, which is certainly is you know is a subject of your book here. Um, right. You were searching for a title. You looked at old blues tunes, um, <laughs> and that led you to a, a a collection, I guess, fifty years since emancipation. Um, and it got me thinking that uh, you know, as a white man here in Utah, I I don't. It's not really in my consciousness. We I think as a as a nation, we're proud of of the of the arc. Uh, you know, the civil rights movement. Thurgood Marshall was certainly involved there. You know, all the way to our first black president. And we don't focus on that horrible time. Um, you know, after emancipation and and years and years and years of of Jim Crow. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that was what surprised me most because I have to say I'm not a historian and and so I kind of went into this a little bit blindly, um not really being familiar with with, you know, the real truth behind some of the things that were happening in this country after reconstruction. And you know, when I went back and and started looking through all these files, I, you know, I think we're used to seeing those images of Jim Crow with the separate water fountains and the separate entrances um, at theaters that African Americans had to use. And I got to thinking that after I saw these photographs, this was after I was doing a lot of research, I, I felt these pictures really whitewash uh, American history. They, they, they sort of present a history that's maybe rude or impolite to African Americans. And, you know, what I was finding when I looked through some of these case files was Rude and impolite were not words I would use to describe it. It was more brutality and terrorism. And and so when I started looking back at this, I, I found out really hard to say, this is, this is our nation, this is our country, we are actually doing this to a population. And it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of, or a few bad apples out there. It was like, all the way up to the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office. You could see the president's involvement in sort of maintaining white supremacy over decades. And so I felt like when I started looking at that and sort of started seeing the memos and the, and the actions, um, it was disturbing to me as an American that we had, we had really put a population of our uh, society through this kind of terrorism. Uh, I'm looking at a photograph here. This is very impactful. This is, I think, in New York. This is outside the offices of NAACP, <laughs> and it's it's a big black banner with white letters, and the letters say, "A man was lynched yesterday." Right, and that was sort of what the, the world that Thurgood Marshall was living in. I mean, you they would get word that something happened, a lynching in some part of it, usually down south. And 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 there wasn't a lot that that Marshall could do because in the, in those kind of cases they're not a legal aid society. In those kind of cases, you would have to force prosecution, and that 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 was something that Marshall's attorneys could not do. They could not persuade, you know, the FBI to get involved in civil rights uh, actions. They could not persuade some of these prosecutors down south to all of a sudden issue indictments on these lynchings. So a lot of these lynchings just went unsolved. And that drove Marshall and his attorneys crazy because they said, we go down south the next day and we found out who the lynchers were right away. And the problem was that nobody would report them because as soon as African-American witnesses came forward 
and said, oh, we saw who it was, they would be chased out of town or, or possibly killed themselves. And so it was extremely dangerous for the African-American communities to, to work with the FBI. And so these lynchings just went unsolved. And so that was, I think, the most disturbing thing to Marshall was that they just really never saw any progress over decades on that front. And, uh, you know, if you weren't killed, your house might be burned down. It was it, it's mob violence uh, and oh, institutionalized yeah. mob violence. Right. And it's just, you look at the little things like the disenfranchisement, you know, like, all right, well, Thurgood Marshall wins the Supreme Court case, Smith versus Allwright. Now African-Americans are allowed to vote in the primaries. Well, allowed to vote is one thing, but when you have a Klan with crosses and burning torches circling through neighborhoods, saying don't get any ideas about actually showing up to the polls, um, that makes a big difference. And so you, you just did not see people violating those. They were not going to be um, putting their lives on the line to vote. And so you, even though they were legally permitted to vote, the, the black um, votes were way, way down for, for more than a decade. And so it's just that kind of intimidation and just you know, law enforcement, which was really closely intertwined with the Klan at the time in a lot of these um, towns, uh, they were able to just intimidate and have their way. In in your book, this is in the prologue. Uh, Thurgood Marshall is on a train. He's heading south, uh, as he as he would do periodically to to try one of these cases, chipping away at uh, you know this this institutionalized racism, uh, and he has a recurring dream. Um, he's he's thinking of a particular. I mean, he he would see photographs and he would try cases of many black men lynched. In this case, is Reuben Stacy. His, but right. but what what especially uh, maybe tell me about this? What especially bothered him, of course, was was the dead body of Reuben Stacy, but it was something else too. Right, and that was the thing. He did get a lot of these lynching photographs, and they were they were using they were used as collectors' items. So after a lynching, you'd have community members come out. They'd really pose around the body and and then trade them like trading cards. And you could you could pick them up at bars in these towns. And and but and Marshall was kind of used to them. But this one particular one of Reuben Stacy in Florida really got to him. And you know, as he said later, it wasn't the bulging eyes, it wasn't the bullet holes in the body, it wasn't the the rope that was cutting into the the, the victim's neck. It was these little children who had come out, these little white children dressed up in their Sunday best to pose and rejoice around the body. And Marshall said that was the thing that kept him up nights, that he just felt like one of these days he was going to be lynched himself and that all these little children would come out in their Sunday school outfits and sort of rejoice around his own body. And he he admitted later he would wake up in cold sweats going into some of these towns by himself to take on some of these very dangerous cases. Yeah, he was very brave, and those around him. In fact, you know, he had colleagues killed. And, um, I want to get into the the, the case. But I want to go to break uh, um, and uh, then get into specifics of, of this uh, chilling case, which, sure. uh, by the way, the book reads like a thriller. I think that was on, on purpose. Um, but um, before we do, I want to bring it forward to today, and I want to do that reading this uh, quote from, from Marshall. This really struck me. You, you have this in the book. Thurgood Marshall says, Sometimes... Uh, I get awfully tired of trying to save the white man's soul. Right. Yeah. And and it is interesting. I mean, Marshall also had a real gallows humor. And a lot of times he would try to lighten the mood um, by, by just 
speaking these truths that sort of resonate, I think, today. You know, and, and his point was like, I'm not just doing this for blacks. We are Americans, and we are all better off if we treat equality seriously. And, and he was really committed to that. One of the strange things I found when I was reading this was that he was such a patriot. He really did believe in the Constitution, and, and you know, he believed in the letter of the law. He believed in the system. And, you know, it, even it, it created problems for him later on when, when, you know, Martin Luther King and there was all these protests in the streets. Marshall was against protesting at, at, in the early stages. He said, protesting is very dangerous. You're going to get hurt out there. Um, he said, we can, we're accomplishing great things through the courts. And so there was a little bit of friction there for a while. In fact, he, he did believe in the, in the law, right? He, he said that, uh, you know, we can legislate morality. Paraphrasing him, he says laws can change hearts. Right, and I think that was one of the major, major themes of the, of the entire book was that, you know, he did, he was always chipping away, but, you know, ultimately, whether or not you agree that, you know, segregation was something that has been solved, because, you know, now you're starting to see segregation in different forms, economic, neighborhood-wise, um, but you, you cannot argue that people sort of say, well, we all believe in equal education. In other words, Marshall's attack uh, in Brown versus Board was... They, they had a very strategic point of view. They came out and said, look, if you want to defend segregation, that's fine, but you have to make sure that you're giving just as much money to black schools as you are to white schools. And basically that would have bankrupt every state that he was taking to court because they knew it was not equal. And so by all of a sudden, Marshall just putting that financial burden on, on these states, the states had no choice but to say, oh, well, we have to, we have to desegregate. And so it was, it was amazing to see his, his strategy in a lot of these cases. And, and I think it's, it's also telling that when you look at some of these landmark uh, decisions that Marshall won in the Supreme Court, a lot of them were nine-nothing decisions, which, you know, hard to imagine that happening today. Hmm. I want to bring things forward to uh, to today. Um, you know, we we do celebrate progress, and there has been a lot of progress. But I wonder if we forget if some of this history is fading. This this, this horrible Jim Crow era, this mob violence. Um, you know, one race against against another. And I'm thinking about the recent presidential election. We we you know the alt right, and it, which is a euphemism for white supremacists, right? Um, it, it were you know thrilled with Mr. Trump, uh, some of the things he was saying and and not saying. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I think you know when you look back at some of the history, you you, you see these cases. You go, wow, this this is still being argued today. We're still having these fights now. It's it's sixty years later. We've gone through a civil rights movement, and now you're starting to see like issues like voting rights become an issue again. We're starting to see the states rolling back some of the voting rights, saying, you know, we don't have this problem anymore. We're not the deep south. We don't need to be regulated by the federal government in terms of voting. And so we would like to now just move on as if nothing happened. And, you know, the moment the moment that happens, of course, the Supreme Court has a ruling. And, and the next thing you know, you see these states all of a sudden implementing these very different but very to the same effect, making it more difficult for populations in, in the United States to vote. And so these are, these are cases that are still being um, argued. You still see... Even segregation is argued in, in just different ways with um, redlining and, and zoning. And, and, and so some of these issues really just never go away. And I think, you know, it's pretty much a, a reason for that is that we've really never really come to terms with race. We've just sort of 
brushed it under the rug and 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 not really addressed some of the fundamental core issues going back to slavery and and so I think you know until America really uh, comes to terms with some of these long-standing racial issues, um, we're, we're not going to see a great deal of progress. What uh, what do you think some of those core issues, and how do we address those? I, I think we did, you know, there was some euphoria with the election of Barack Obama and, and patting ourselves on the back, and then I think we've seen we've seen a backlash here. Yeah, there's definitely a backlash, and, I, you know, I, I think one of the things is, is, is the way information is being dispersed these days. I think it becomes... Uh, a little bit confusing to people, and 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 different truths emerge. I, I mean, I think most people will agree that you know there should be equal rights, and that you know the the Constitution, it, it, we all abide by the Constitution. But if you look at some of the those little wedge issues, you know, and and one of the I think main things is we look at like the response to Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, this was a, a movement that was really started in the African American communities because. You know, when, when in the, you know, there's a history, a long history of of police shootings, and and you know before we had cell phone videos, um, there wasn't really a lot that these communities could do. That's the one thing I really found in, in a lot of my research was that a lot of times you'd have a man, you know, arrested and just shot by the side of the road, and it was basically the deputy's version uh, that got to the coroner's jury, and he said, well, you know, he went for my gun. There's no way to prove that, and there's not a single all-white jury in a lot of these communities that was going to, you know, not take the word of, of law enforcement. And so I think what happened with that was that you start to see this bleed out into communities. They all have an uncle who disappeared, maybe, or or, or a brother who got shot somewhere, and it, it seems suspicious. The brother wasn't a bad guy. And so the, these kind of, like, um, stories are passed along for community to community over generations. And so when it happens now, people are suspicious of it. And, and then you start seeing some of these video camera footage uh, coming forward, and, and some of the stuff looks a little disturbing. Some of it doesn't really match up exactly what the police said in their reports. And and so people are taking to the streets about it. And, and so, you know, these are the these are the issues that Thurgood Marshall and, and his lawyers were dealing with back in the 40s and 50s, and uh, they are definitely not gone today. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get into this uh, the fascinating story. The book is The Devil in the Grove or rather Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America. And uh, the uh, book won the Pulitzer Prize, and uh, the author is uh, Gilbert King. He's joined us uh, for the hour. You can join us as well. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. Did you know that people in healthy relationships have certain qualities in common? They manage their time, they are good listeners, and they put away their phones during a conversation. They show empathy for their partners, they're responsible with money, and they deal well with conflict. They know how to handle stress effectively and work with their partner as a team. These skills can make or break relationships. If you do not feel you have the tools to be successful in a relationship, you can learn. You can take a relationships class or go to a professional like a marriage and family therapist or a family finance counselor. 
This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, my guest is Gilbert King. He is Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. He's joined us uh, for the hour. Uh, so the year is uh, 1951. Thurgood Marshall has already begun to uh, try the, the one of his most famous cases. It would be known as Brown versus Board of Education. But first, he would have to uh, make it through the deadliest case of his career, and that's the uh, that's the case we're going to talk about uh, right now. So, Gilbert King, I wonder if you could uh, set the scene here. Uh, beginning with this uh, quote, you say Florida was the south of the south. Right. You know, I, th- I think that was one of the things that I was found really surprising, is that a lot of people did not look at Florida as the south, because... Florida was basically three states. You know, you had a very agricultural central part of Florida. You had North Florida, which there's the expression, the further north you go, the further south you get. Um, And then down in Miami in that area, which was sort of a, you know, a a very urban cosmopolitan setting. Um, But Florida had a lot of atrocities. In fact, it had the highest per capita rate of lynching in America. And a lot of people didn't realize how dangerous Florida was for African Americans. Um, But it kind of flew under the radar. People were aware of the atrocities that were happening in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. But Florida, people really didn't know what to make of it. And in fact, it was just sort of off the radar. So it didn't get the same kind of media attention. Um, Some of the cases that that, made a lot of of waves a little further north in, in those other cotton belt states that I mentioned. And so this was a case that began in 1949, and it was, you know, as you said, it was the beginning when Marshall was just out there, just starting to do these Brown versus Board that case um, that became the, you know, the landmark Supreme Court uh, decision on school segregation. And a lot of his associates were not very happy that Marshall was continuing to take these very dangerous criminal cases down south. And, you know, they would say to him, you know, Thurgood, you're indispensable to the civil rights movement. We can't have you going down taking these death penalty cases where, you know, it's just you and another lawyer and and there's, you know, crazy sheriffs and the Klan chasing you around. And it's just it's, it's too dangerous. And Marshall's response was always something that really stayed with me. And in fact, he said, you know, these cases are just as important as those civil rights cases because these cases save lives. And so, in a way, Thurgood Marshall was sort of the early precursor to Black Lives Matter. Um, He was the only one that really, he was the last hope. Because if you didn't have a good lawyer back then, if you were poor and disenfranchised, your chances of actually winning in court or at least winning an appeal and getting before the Supreme Court was, was nil. And so Marshall knew that a lot of times he was going to be the last hope. And so this particular case was um, uh, a young uh, um, white girl, 17 years old, um, falsely accused four African-Americans of rape. 
and it became a very dangerous case. All of a sudden, the next day, the Ku Klux Klan rolled into this part of Groveland, Florida, and started burning down the black homes. And Thurgood Marshall sent one of his lawyers down there to investigate, and um, I saw the letter that he'd written back, and he was absolutely terrified. He says, we need help down here. This is a, this is a very dangerous, we're getting warned that we're going to be killed down here. And, you know, they, they'd thrown a couple of the Groveland boys in jail. The Klan had come, tried to get him out of there. There was definitely going to be a lynching there. And then you had Sheriff Willis McCall, who sort of stepped in as a hero early in the story and prevents a lynching and basically hides the Groveland boys from the Klan. Why did he do that? Later on, he'd actually shoot a couple of them. Why did he do that yeah. initially? Well, that's an interesting thing, and it really goes to the power structure of what was happening. So back then, law enforcement worked very closely with the Klan, and so I think Sheriff Willis McCall was able to say to the Klan, hold on here, boys, we're not going to have a lynching, not in my county. That makes me look bad. Right now, you know, in, in America, lynchings were down, but the, the use of the, the electric chair was up. And so that sort of became a legal lynching. And so what you had in, in the South, especially, were very swift trials, where a man would be arrested, a couple weeks later he'd be convicted, and a week after that he'd be sent to the electric chair. And so that was sort of the way the South was moving in terms of stepping away from lynching, but more swiftly punishing especially when it came to rape uh, in the South, the accusations of rape especially. And so Willis McCall sort of made this implicit deal with the Klan in this community that there was not going to be a lynching in his county, but that he, he, would, say, he would say, mark my words, uh, these boys are going to be swiftly convicted and sent to the electric chair. And so when Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers come down and actually appeal this case, it was a very swift uh, guilty verdict and death sentences. Marshall and his lawyers are able to overturn this in the Supreme Court. And so you could imagine Sheriff Willis McCall did not really like that Supreme Court decision very much because he promised everybody that there was going to be swift justice in this case. And so that's when he had the idea that, well, if there's going to be a retrial, I'll just go up to Rayford State Prison myself and pick up the Groveland boys and bring them back down for the trial. And so he does that in November of 1951, and then he takes a little turn down a dirt road, and the next thing you know, shots ring out, and there's two men handcuffed together lying in a ditch on the side of Lake County. And, and one of them survived. Right, and that's, I think that was the equivalent to the cell phone uh, from 1951. He, you know, if, the, if both of those men had, had been killed, that there would never be a case. This book could never be written because Sheriff Willis McCall would have written the history of what happened. And his, his version was that these men tried to escape and that they attacked him. And he said that he fired, emptied his gun while they were attacking well, one of the men, Walter Irvin, was handcuffed to his best friend, and he just laid there and pretended to be dead. And he survived. And the next morning in the hospital, he regained consciousness, and he started to tell a very different story. He said that, no, that was unprovoked. Uh, we were both handcuffed. He just pulled over, said he was having some car trouble, and then he opened fire. And Irvin said, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't run. All I could do is just lay there, hold my breath, and pretend to be dead. And then he went on to tell Marshall, this was right in the hospital room the very next morning. He said, that, that's, not the, that's not all of it. He said, I heard the sheriff get on the radio and say, get back here, get back here, I got him good. 
And then the deputy came back, shined his flashlight down, and said, this one ain't dead yet, pulled his own gun, and fired another shot right through Walter Irvin's neck. So the FBI is listening to this, and they've heard Willis McCall's version that it was an attack, and then they heard Walter Irvin's version that he was laying on the ground for that last shot. And they had recovered all the bullets except that last bullet. And so the FBI went back to the scene of the crime, and they found the blood stain where Walter Irvin had been laying the night before, and they took out a little shovel and started digging, and sure enough, 10 inches below the surface of the soil, they found that last bullet that matched the deputy's gun. And so now, amazingly, the FBI had pure, uncontroverted proof that Willis McCall and his deputy were lying, and that Walter Irvin was telling the truth about how that shooting went down. And I think probably the most disturbing thing to me uh, in the research was that the FBI had all this, it was in all their reports, and the whole thing was really quashed. It was kept in those records. Thurgood Marshall never got to see this stuff. Uh, I filed a Freedom of Information Act and uh, 60 years later, and I was the first one to open up those uh, files. And sure enough, the proof is right there. And I think probably the most disturbing thing of all was that one of the FBI agents who was involved in these cases he, he said, you know, he was very livid that they did not go forward with this and, and, and prosecute. And the excuse he got within his department was these four words that, that are pretty haunting, for the tranquility of the South. Hmm. In other words, if we open up this case, people will be rioting in the streets. It's better off to just push this under the rug. And so that's what the FBI did. They just sort of covered this up and let this stay in a file that was, you know, still under investigation. And this was proof that a law enforcement agent and his deputy were murderers. Yeah, that that is amazing. Very depressing. Yeah, those those words. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and the thing of it is, it's like you know, the FBI at one point, you know, they, they do try to move forward on this case, and it gets to a U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorney is a Florida old segregationist, and he basically quashes it himself. He says, "No more of this investigation." And so you see how it reaches these highest level of government. It's not just one bad sheriff, Willis McCall. It's a bunch of people like the FBI and the U.S. attorneys who had his back and were willing to sort of turn, turn the cheek and, or turn their eye away from some of these atrocities and allow it to continue. And I think that's the thing you find most disturbing. It, it would be very easy to just say, well, there's a couple bad racists out there. But actually, the U.S. government was really complicit in a lot of these cover-ups. There's there's some echoes to today. You know, there are people who who tell Black Lives Matter others, why are you protesting? Why are you, you know, why are you disturbing the peace? Right, and I, yeah, I think I think that's you know a, a really a strong you know a strong echoing of those early days when there were all sorts of of these kind of atrocities that they just were not provable. You could never get a grand jury in the South to really indict. I'm, I'm finding this now. I'm working on some new stories and. and one case after another, the FBI doesn't even want to get involved in these because every time they open up a civil rights case, uh, they try to get an indictment. Uh, the jury is just basically nullify it. And, and so the FBI, you know, to their credit, they were, they were willing to do these investigations. And a lot of times they would come forward and say, we have pure proof. Some of the strongest case we have are right here. And yet you had these juries 
in the South that would still say, nope, we're not going to we're not going to indict these police officers. These, these police officers are, are fine members of our society, and we're not going to believe the words of African Americans over them. And so there was this nullification, and and you know Hoover. He just hated these civil rights cases, and and for for the most part, they just gave a black eye to the FBI. It was like another loss in all these resources and all these investigations, and then they couldn't get indictments. And so you could see why you know Hoover himself was just reluctant to get involved in these kind of cases. They just constantly beat the FBI up. So d- despite what should have been uh, you know smoking gun type evidence, this didn't this didn't help the man who had been shot, <laughs> Walter Urban, right? No, not at all. I mean, and, and that's the thing. They, they still, they allowed him three weeks to heal from his injuries. He had three gunshot wounds. They allowed him three weeks to heal so that they could retry him. And he, he was the last Groveland boy at that point. To, the other ones had been killed. And one, one of them was 16, so they gave him mercy and gave him a life sentence. But the others had been killed by uh, mobs or Sheriff McCall himself. And so Walter Irvin goes to this trial thinking, well, I have Thurgood Marshall as my lawyer, and you know, the Supreme Court's already overturned the decision. I, maybe you know, with all the publicity, I'm I'm going to get a break here. And uh, you know, Marshall's saying to him, "Don't think you're going to get a break. This is Florida. I still have you know, 12 white male jurors, um, and and basically a prosecutor who's friends with all the jurors, friends with the judge." You know, the odds are stacked against us. And Marshall tried to advise, you know, his client to take a plea deal. And the plea deal was turned down, was, you know, basically brought down from the governor's office because they didn't want any more of this publicity. I mean, it was just giving Florida a black eye. Uh, Tourists were stopping, you know, visiting Florida. They thought it was an out-of-control, lawless state. And so the governor just wanted it to stop. And so they sent down a plea to Walter Irvin, say, just take life in prison, and uh, we'll save you from the electric chair. And Walter Irvin said, well, I don't want to die. I'll, I'll take that deal. What do I have to do? And Marshall explains it to him. He says, you have to tell the judge that you're guilty of raping Norma Paget." And he thinks about it for a second. He says, I'm not going to lie. He goes, I'm not going to do it. And he refused to take the deal. And Marshall was practically pleading with him to take the deal because Marshall had seen so many clients of his over the years get sent to the electric chair. And he felt like he said, all all I do is sit out there in the hallways and and hug these mothers and apologize for not being able to save their son. So anytime I got a deal like this, I wanted to take it. Maybe later on we could see about getting it reversed or get the sentence reduced. But Marshall was really eager to take these kind of deals that would save a life. But Walter Irvin refused to take the deal, and so he went to the second trial. <laughs> mm. Now, uh, you know, despite this, uh, I, I think in the end, uh, Thurgood Marshall saw this this case as a a step forward, right? He would he would always cite, despite the fact this is not well known, you know, tell your book, uh, he would tell his legal clerks all about this case. Oh yeah, and that that was the thing. Like you know, these cases were really not very well known because I think historians either wrote about the civil rights, um, you know, landmark cases before the Supreme Court, or they they focused on his days as a Supreme Court justice himself. But a lot of times these these cases got lost in in, in Marshall's biography. But you know, when I talked to the clerks and even even some of the fellow Supreme Court justices who served with him, 
they would say that, you know, this is all Marshall talked about. The, those early days where he's down south by himself and having guns pulled on him and getting chased around by the Klan, I think it was a way Marshall saw himself as this crusading lawyer. And I, I feel like that is a lot of what Marshall believed he was as a human being. He was out there fighting for civil rights uh, early on before you know, we, I guess you'd call it the pre-civil rights movement. Um, but it was really the way Marshall saw himself as this crusading lawyer. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about Norma Padgett. This is a 17-year-old uh, young woman who accused four black men of rape. And what was it about these you know, r- rape allegations, which would often lead to lynchings, uh, this explosive mixture, uh, sex and race, Let's talk about that and and much more when we come back. We're talking with uh, Gilbert King. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, the Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America. Hello, this is Steve Williams. I wanted to invite you to join me in Utah Public Radio for their annual New Year's Eve benefit party. This time, bring in the new year with a night enjoying the sweet tones of nine-piece band, Way Way East Bay, a plated dinner and all your favorite Utah Public Radio friends. They have even arranged for discounted room nights so you can make a vacation out of it. Go to upr.org or call Ted Twinting at 435-797-9507 for more information. Holiday programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you by our members and Dr. Ty Harrison, Team Physician for Utah State Sports Medicine with the team of physicians at the Budge Clinic, 1340 North, 500 East in Logan. Intermountain Clinics, wishing UPR listeners a safe and happy holiday season. Information at 435-716-2800. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Gilbert King. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, the Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America. He joins us from uh, New York, I believe. Um, so I want to, this case, uh, 1951 is when it, uh, I guess, came to trial through Good Marshall, went down to uh, Groveland, Florida. Uh, Norma Pageant, 17-year-old young woman, accuses uh, four uh, black men of, of rape. Um, un, you know, th- these are not true allegations, but it, it led to, led to death, led to, discre- led to long jail sentences. Uh, and you tried to, I think you tried to, years later when you're putting together this book, you tried to talk to Norma Paget. Yeah, she she refused that. What do you think she accused these men of rape? Well, I mean, I think the the defense attorneys, Thurgood Marshall's uh, lawyers, put together a theory about based on their investigations, and they basically, and this is a hard thing to really understand. Uh, I cert- it was certainly new to me, but aside from just doing you know racial things in, in the South, the Klan was also involved in the sort of moral enforcing of community values. And so, you know, I talked to some deputies down there, and, and, and they said, oh, back in the day, you know, we'd be driving along, and we'd just see a naked guy out in the field, and he had welts all over his body, and he was just laying in a ditch. And we'd pick him up, and, you know, we'd say, what happened to you? And he said, I think I fell. And he wouldn't say anything. 
And, you know, the deputies knew exactly what it was. If you were uh, in a community in the South, and you were a white man, and you were, say, drinking too much and neglecting your children or maybe beating your wife, you might get a visit from the Klan, especially if certain family members were in the Klan. And that would pretty much be your 12-step program, except it would be one step. They would just take you out and give you a beating and say, next time, it's not going to end you know, well for you. And so these deputies would say that would happen a lot. And so rumors around Groveland at the time was that uh, Norma Paget's husband, Willie, had been slapping Norma around. Um, they'd only been married a few months, and already they had to separate. And they were separated for about six months when, in the summer of 49, they decided to get back together and maybe start over. And they went out drinking one night, drinking and dancing, and something happened alongside of a road, not really clear what it was. It looked like, looked like they tried to park their car in a dark spot. Um, and then the next thing you know, there are these allegations that that Norma was abducted and raped by four African Americans, and that, that was a, that was a problem for Willis McCall in the Lake County Sheriff's Department because, you know, all of a sudden they had to find four men who did this because she said I couldn't recognize any of these guys, um, but Willis McCall said, well, I think I know who they are, and he just started rounding up suspects. And, you know, a couple of them never seen each other before, but all of a sudden they were now involved in this in this plot to abduct and, and rape Norma Paget. And, and so the case sort of spirals out of control at that point. And it was a very common thing in the South. You know, Rosewood, also in Florida, started out that way. You had the Scottsboro Boys with these accusations that these nine African-Americans had gotten together and decided to, you know, rape some white women. And you could see it being used as a power uh, thing, or sometimes it would be used to, if you had, and this was fairly common too, um, you actually had affairs between, you know, interracial affairs, uh, which, you know, could lead to some real danger. And so those, oh, that was not consensual. That was a rape. And so those accusations happened constantly in the South. And a lot of times that was what Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers were up against, trying to sort of defend these falsely accused men of rape and, and going to the electric chair. And so that was pretty much what how this case started, too. It was a very similar case to the Scottsboro Boys. And it, you know, it goes back to the miscegenation laws and, and, and the fact that two races are, are living side by side one is clinging to this and indoctrinating their kids in, the, in this idea that we're superior to the other race, right? Uh, it right. Puts, puts me in mind of a—you you write about this, I don't think in this book, but uh, another place I read. Um, Thurgood Marshall goes to Oklahoma, a, a seminal case in his career, and he, uh, the uh, prosecutor um, is very uh, confident at, at first. He, he knows that he's intellectually superior to this black lawyer coming in. Thurgood Marshall ties him in knots, and, and by the end, he's just—but but that goes to this idea that, that at least the, the, the smarter white people have to have some glimmer at some, at some point, right, that this is, this is a fiction. What we've been taught is not true. Right, and I, you know that was that was a fascinating case. To, it's the, you know we started. I start out the book with that story. It was, it was actually Columbia, Tennessee, and you know it was twenty three African Americans who had just gotten back from the war, um, served their country, and now the Klan is coming into their community, firing gunshots into their houses, and into their businesses, and so they defended themselves. They fired back, 
And so they were all brought up on charges of attempted murder of policemen because, of course, you know, with, with the police were also the Klan. And Marshall, against all odds, gets these guys, all of them, acquitted of the charges, um, which, you know, was very rare. Marshall usually did not win in those, in those criminal cases. He, he would often go on and appeal them and win in the Supreme Court. But to actually win locally was very rare for Marshall, and he was surprised by it. And so they're leaving town after the verdict, and they're actually trying to get out of town pretty quick. And they get pulled over by the police. And they pull Marshall out of the car, throw him in the back of a police car, and drive him down to Duck River in Columbia, Tennessee. And Marshall is in the back of his seat, and he sees a crowd waiting at the river underneath the tree, and he's convinced that he's going to be lynched that night, um, only for practicing law, for getting those men acquitted. And if it wasn't for the men in the car who disobeyed the police and turned around and, and came back and, and, and were able to show up as witnesses, uh, they were all convinced that if that didn't happen, Marshall was going to be lynched right there. And so you think about that, a future Supreme Court justice, and he's nearly killed on the side of a river for practicing law. Yeah, he's he's having an effect. I think people are, <laughs> as you know, especially with the the Supreme Court sympathetic to him, and then winning these cases, the Supreme Court, and sometimes winning in in uh, lower courts. I want to have uh, you talk a little bit about what it must have been like to be an African American in in the South in in this this era. You you have some touching letters written to Thurgood Marshall. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, not very good spelling. One was addressed to Mister Thurgood. Uh, leaving out the right. the, the H, um, the, they at least at this point when when you got the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, you know there was somebody I can reach out to and and maybe uh, maybe Thurgood Marshall will come to town. Yeah, and I, I think that was probably the most heartbreaking thing was to look at some of these letters because they deeply affected Marshall, and you know a lot of times what the kind of letters that Marshall was getting and this, this is one of the most disturbing parts of the whole book was that. A lot of the times it was just these young, like, teenage African-Americans living in these very small communities. And and the white people, powerful, either law enforcement or just doctors or, or just well-off people, just felt that they could basically rape at will. And so you would get these letters from these parents just saying, you know, my child was dragged out into the woods and raped by a prominent white man, um, you know, Mr. Marshall, can can you help us? And Marshall, I, I saw these letters that he had to write back, and he says, "There's not much I can do. You know, this is a prosecution problem. You have to you have to politically um, sort of call attention to this case and get local prosecutors to move forward and investigate this, and get law enforcement agents to investigate it." And I think those letters of just these young girls, these young African American girls who are raped, and not only raped, some of them were killed, and Marshall having to write back the, you know, the clergy or the, or the parents saying, there's nothing I can do here. And so that was where he could get involved later on was when these false accusations came against African Americans. Those were when those became defense situations, and that's where the Legal Defense Fund could get involved. And so I think, you know, talking about, you know, what it was like being black in the 40s and 50s, you know, it was a, it was a terrifying thing. Marshall was often, you know, asked about how brave it must have been for him to go down there and and, and do this. And he said, you know, I'm not brave. I'm scared out of my mind. And he goes, but I live in New York. I get to get back on a train and go back up to New York, and, and I'm safe up there. He goes, the real heroes, the ones who face constant danger, are the 
people down here who decide to fight back and they're locals. They live here. People like Harry T. Moore, who was the president of the Florida NAACP, and he worked with Thurgood Marshall on this Groveland case. And in the middle of the in the middle of the trials, the um, Ku Klux Klan puts a bomb under their house, killing both Harry T. Moore and his wife, uh, making him basically the first. Um, civil rights martyr in, in the, of the modern civil rights movement. And nobody really knows his name. People are familiar with Edgar Me, uh, Medgar Evers, uh, who was killed about 10 years later. But, but Harry T. Moore was really the first, and um, nobody knows his name. And I think that's one of those things about Florida being south of the south. It just was not on people's radar. And some of the atrocities and some of the terrorism that was happening in Florida at the time, is, is, people are just not aware of. Just have about uh, three minutes left. I want to end with this, with the epigraph. Uh, you, you say you write in your your afterward um, titled "The Last Word" that uh, you, for various reasons you didn't get an epigraph in the hardcover version, but you get, did get it in the paperback. And it it is it is very part of very. Uh, there's I've been thinking about it a lot. There's good and bad here uh, about America today. Uh, so this is John J. Chapman. From The Negro Problem, 1915 is when he wrote this. I'll quote it. Uh, John G. Chapman, There is a law governing the meeting of the races. When a powerful race meets a helpless race, two things happen. First, there is a carnival of crime. Cruelty and oppression take place. Some men in each race become hard-hearted. But the reverse also happens thereafter. Goodness and mercy are developed. Certain men become saints and heroes. Yeah, and I, I just found that very poignant, and I think it goes to the point, and if you if you read the book, you'll see that Marshall could do a lot with the law, but he couldn't do everything with the law, and a lot of his battles were really fighting for hearts and minds, and a lot of times he would take these cases that he knew he was going to lose, but yet there was hundreds of African Americans up in those Jim Crow balconies, and it was the first time they'd ever see a black man in court who wasn't the defendant, and Marshall knew that he was inspiring hope. And, and giving blacks a vision of what was possible in America. And so I think that some of his battles were also done on that kind of micro level, where he knew he was going to lose, but he had to sort of go into these communities and provide some kind of hope. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, people I've, I've, I've listened to people tell me that, you know, Marshall was a saint and a hero because they inspired me to go to law school and become a civil rights lawyer. And, and I, I get letters like that all the time from people. And so I think, you know, yeah, you have the carnival of crime, but you also have these great moments of humanity and, and, and touching uh, people's lives that I think Marshall really uh, did. And he did a lot of this outside the law. Finally, just a minute left. Uh, what do you? What's what's the big takeaway you take away from this? From the, all this research? Well, I think my takeaway is that I think this just for me it was like a coming to understanding uh, American history. It got me to really understand what was really happening um, in in this country. And so when you look around today and you see racial strife and racial anger about certain issues, I, I think understanding where that comes from. Um, it is really helpful in moving forward. And I think that, you know, I think to me, an understanding of past pain and injustice is a great way to move forward. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, Marshall is one of those men, I think, in the, who doesn't get a lot of credit for, for being out front of the civil rights movement. You know, he doesn't have a monument. He doesn't have a, a birthday that's a holiday. In a lot of ways, 
the, the, the America we live in is sort of the monument to Thurgood Marshall's life. Well, it's uh, Pulse Pelting Reed and uh, important history as well. Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, the Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, I think, in 2013. Uh, Gilbert King, the author, has uh, joined us. Uh, thank you so much. Tom, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the talk. Yeah, uh, me too. Thank you. Uh, coming up um, tomorrow, we will uh, be talking uh, with the author of The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. The author is Stephen Greenblatt. Hope you join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Hi, I'm Lynn Wolfel. You know, movies have always been a huge part of celebrating the holidays, and I hope you can join me for a Hollywood holiday, bringing you some of the best nostalgic and newer releases from Hollywood that celebrate the season. Join me for Hollywood Holiday from American Public Media. Monday evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. And we hope to check out our entire holiday programming schedule. That's on our website, upr.org. I'm Ronnie Adams, the Utah chapter leader for the Stop Abuse Campaign, inviting you to learn more about Utah projects and people that empower during Utah Public Radio's original series, Objectified, More Than a Body. Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 during All Things Considered and Wednesday mornings at 7.41 during Morning Edition. Program listings and times found at upr.org. Heard only on Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Steve Williams. I'm bringing jazz time to UPR. Each week I'll feature commentary, history, the occasional interview, and of course lots of music. From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Paris to Logan, Utah, I'll be your guide through the many varieties of jazz music. I hope you'll join me for KCBW's Jazz Time with Steve Williams, Sunday evenings from 6 to 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Are you getting excited about Rogue One? The new Star Wars movie's coming out soon. You'll hear from one of the stars, Riz Ahmed. He'll talk about the movie and his days as a student activist at Oxford. That's coming up on Q from PRI, that is Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.